Hello, you are very welcome to episode number 70 of FNI Rap Chat. Number 70, I was actually just uh, only recently speaking to Nick Kelly, who was number one, the first ever guest on FNI Rap Chat. Um, seems like a long time ago, it was only maybe just about two years ago. Um, so it's been uh, quite an experience for both myself and Paul uh, getting up to this number and thank you to every single one of our 70 guests and thank you to all the listeners um who make the show what it is and uh yeah it's it's been it's been great um yeah and if you want to go back and listen to nick kelly's episode um was just i think after the release of his first feature film uh drummer and the keeper uh so yeah today we have kieran cassidy uh one of my favourite documentary directors uh, working in Ireland at the moment and a very talented uh, radio documentary maker as well. Um, you can find a lot of his uh, docs if you go to the RTE doc on one website. Uh, one in particular was the one about a, uh, a Cuban boxer who was brought to Ireland. Was, I, I love that one. Um, he's also very well known for his film. Um, I think one of his best known shorts was... Uh, the the last days of Peter Bergman, which was a huge, huge success and went to Sundance and uh, I think kind of went viral after. So uh, you can watch that. That is available on Vimeo. Also his film, The Moderators, uh, was a, a huge success as well. And his latest feature film, J- Jihad Jane, uh, which I got to see at the Galway Film Flat. And a really, really fascinating film. Um about a case, that kind of a forgotten case, but was huge in the media at the time, uh, about two women who from America who were in, uh, involved in a plot uh, to kill a Swedish cartoonist who had drawn uh, a lewd um, cartoon of uh, Prophet Muhammad. Uh, so one of those kind of stranger than fiction uh, and all, and partly taking place in Waterford. Um, so it's brilliant to talk to Kieran about how that film came about and how he, how he made it. And that will be available uh, we'll, to see uh, in the coming months. Um, there will be a release, I think, in the autumn. So we will, when we have more details, we will let you know about that. Um, and that is going to be wildcard distribution as well so shout out to our sponsors um, and uh, yeah as always if you want to uh, go to buymeacoffee.org forward slash FNI uh, you can drop us a few quid if you want to help support the show equally we really appreciate all the feedback that we get on social media and on the, the podcast outlets so on iTunes leave us a review uh, that's always good the best thing you can do is probably just recommend it to a friend um, so yeah, here we go. This is number seventy, Kieran Cassidy. Kieran Cassidy, thanks very much for coming into the studio. Um, we were just talking off air there uh, about being at different stages at different projects with different projects. So you had Jihad Jane premiering a few weeks ago. How good are you are are you at like juggling different films and different projects? Or how many would you have on the go at one time? 
Um, I think you have to. Yeah. Like, I think the, I, I remember, <clears throat> I saw, I think it was like the guys from Book of Kells or something like that, you know, Cartoon Saloon. Yeah. And they talked about when they had done their first one, I think, which was the Book of Kells, that um, <clears throat> they were so kind of committed to it and they were so focused on it. And then it finished. And then they had about a month or two months later and then they all had to go and try and get TV work or something like right. that. And that's yeah. that's vaguely what I remember from the... Yeah. But I think like anybody who's involved in this industry where there isn't, like it's not huge amounts of money and whatnot involved in it, you need to basically... Like, I feel that you have to kind of create a conveyor belt. Yeah. So you have a kind of a primary project that you might be dealing with on a day-to-day. Yeah. Then you're, like, almost always thinking about, like, what I'm going to be working on next and have that. And somebody, sometimes this can be in gestation for up to 18 months, two years, whatnot. And then you're already, like, thinking you've got two or three other projects. So you'd be chasing then those stories, trying to kind of follow up leads and that, and then maybe possibly arrange a development shoot or something like that. So that's something that you might do a development shoot on next year, but you think could go into production in a year or two's time. Right. So you kind of end up like we kind of ended up now I think at the moment with maybe about five or six uh, projects like that we'd have in our slate and we just would be kind of something you know yourself with documentaries like for every like it's not like you say oh like this is an amazing topic this is a really fascinating character I'm going to make a documentary about them because about six times out of ten you send them a letter or you talk to them and they say ah I don't want to do a doc so even with that kind of um, rate, there's a bit of an attrition, so you yeah. really need to be kind of hothouse and ideas, yeah. and then kind of following up on them, and then seeing if they got legs. And yeah, and are you surprised sometimes by the ones that end up being the viable ones? Um, I think it's not. I don't think you kind of are surprised. I think it's like. I'm, there's very few times where I've like there's something where I'm like mm, a bit ambiguous and then all of a sudden it's doing really well or something like that yeah. like I think you know when you've got a, like a very strong idea because you're going into meetings and people are like thinking more about oh, whether should we should fund this it's about like how can we get this made or we want to get this made Yeah. Um, but I think like where surprises is just I think I think sometimes where like documentaries is kind of heartbreaking in their own right just as in you can work very hard on something for like let's say 18 months uh, and then somebody can just pull out, yeah. and then that's it, you know. Yeah. Or you can. Um, so I think like the, what what kind of surprises you is always like I think you're always I'm fairly confident about the quality of the story yeah. to an extent, but I think some to some stories have more marketability, so you're able to attract more finance. You might be able to get more interest in it, yeah. while some maybe a bit more esoteric, a bit more niche as to describe. But if you've got a small budget, you'll be able to get them uh, across the line. Yeah, I guess that's the good thing about documentary in a way that you're not, it's not the huge kind of budgets that you might be dealing with, with, say, feature drama. Yeah. So do you find that there's, uh, we had um, Paul Dwan on, yeah. and he was kind of saying that, actually, so I was kind of saying that that uh, documentary is freeing in one sense, but it's also you're at the, the mercy of kind of your subjects and they're real people and that kind of thing. But he's, he his point was that the budgets are so small that he feels that he can be more creatively free. Would you have a similar thought on that? Or? Um, oh, yeah, well, I, I think, like, let's say with documentaries, I don't think I've ever had a situation where... Uh, because of the money involved, like yeah. I've got, you know, the way like that yeah. cliche of like a, a, an executive yeah. from the, you know, the studio sitting in the back seat <laughs> telling me, no, yeah. ca- you know, 
cut that out and yeah. you know put in this track you know and all of this kind of stuff so it's like usually I think like what you would be working with people is you'd send them like rough cuts and as long as they can see that you're in control and you know what, where you're going with it yeah. I think they're always willing to offer of course offer your advice but I don't think yeah you wouldn't have like that much pressure I think like with I think with docs I think sometimes it can take a long time to get going with them so I think you do have a chicken and egg scenario where something might be happening almost immediately yeah. and you need to kind of get up and shoot that and get things uh, on tape yeah. while like you just like naturally just with the process of like doing up a treatment then sending it in then waiting for an answer to that and then usually you're going to have to get like co-production so you're waiting on two or three different uh, you know positive answers coming back yeah. and then you've got four positive answers you're yeah. ready to go but one of the people over in Sweden they've changed their job now and there's a new person coming in and they want to meet us to start. so then all of a sudden you're kind of it's, it's always kind of changing so film yeah like it's uh, I think it's um, I think just the process can be like uh, difficult you know it's yeah. it, like just to get to align everything alongside it yeah. but uh, once you're making it I think usually it's a very kind of supportive collaborative yeah. uh, feel and how do you work with your subjects? Because most of your films are you're dealing with kind of very normal people, um, and I guess there's a bit of you know convincing. And uh, how, how do you kind of approach and how, how do you kind of walk your subjects through the process of making a film? Um, I think like the the first thing you'd always do is. Uh, I don't, I don't know, like, if I'd kind of t- walked them through the process. Yeah. Like, I think, I think it's always just a case of, you know, like, I just generally would find that, like, you go and you shoot with somebody and then I think it's just them getting to feel you and understand you. Like, I think, like, one of the strengths that I would feel that I would have is that I've got empathy. And I'm usually in all kind of situations that I am. I'm not out to kind of expose somebody. I'm not trying to show them up. This isn't some kind of snarky documentary or anything that I've ever done so i'm just trying to understand who they are and why they have done why they, what they have done you know and uh, for whatever reasons and whatever the story is um, and usually i just think it takes sometimes just a little bit of time just to get people going and some people are far more comfortable and some people forget very quickly that there's cameras there and it becomes very very natural and other people's it can be a little bit uh convoluted but you, you know yourself like the the thing about it is is that it's like you're panning for gold so you can shoot for quite a while and get people accustomed because really in reality it's only 90 minutes yeah. and what you're looking for is little moments little glimpses and like I found like with certain people like I think people do kind of relax into it like I, I think with film more so than anything you can't force anybody to do it because like it just show on screen so like they need to, they need to be willing uh, and cooperative concerning it yeah. um, but usually if they are then there's a reason for that and they wanted to try and work themselves. But um, I just think it's kind of, um, I think it's just trying to understand them would yeah. be the, the main thing that I would feel when you're walking into that. Yeah. Uh, I guess their motivations for whatever they did, that is the subject of, or yeah. whatever they do, yeah. yeah. Yeah, like I think, like let's say with Jihad Jane, like that would be an example, like like let's say with Colleen. Yeah. She was convicted terrorist. And we, we met her just coming out of prison. And we drove yeah. her across America. And... Um, like there was, we didn't really have much choice, like about how to kind of thing. We just like started shooting, and yeah. she was in the back seat of the car. Yeah, and we would kind of talk to her, but I think like Americans, but like she's very social and extrovert. So like, it wasn't really like I was like. Sometimes you can feel like you're coaxing and you're building distrust. Like she came out and she was, I think she was a bit shocked by 
being thrown on the side of the road in Georgia and this kind of thing that went on with the jail. Right. But within about, I say, half an hour, she was kind of beginning to enjoy her freedom and she was talking in the back seat. Yeah. But I think, um, I think like the, yeah, I think like then you're just kind of with them. I, I would always kind of just let the camera roll. Yeah. Like I came from a kind of like an audio documentary background mm-hmm. and a part of my thing is just like letting the person themselves kind of talk and fill that space and yeah. then you're tr- you're there with them seeing where they're going to take you and then you can kind of maybe like after a day seize a little bit more control but I think people have to kind of show who you who they are yeah. so I think with somebody like Colleen we're just kind of sitting in the car and like obviously she used to meet her uh, probation officer on the Monday and it's a Friday evening but really right. it was like what do you want to do yeah. So she was kind of taking out her bag and showing us, you know, her teddy bears. And then she had a list of her to-do list when she got out. And yeah. you just kind of, like, the it's documentaries is, like, it's not about me. Nobody wants to see what I wanted to do that weekend. Yeah. So you're just kind of letting her go and seeing where where she wants to take it. Yeah. Like, she's out of prison. Yeah. What would she like to do? Where would she like to go? What would she like to eat? What she want to yeah. think about? What's yeah. on her mind? Because, like, that's, in essence, the... What it's about? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's an amazing moment in the film when you're realizing, especially when you see her naivety throughout the film, and this yeah. is the first time she's actually been out after all that. It's quite magical, very like amazing kind of filmic yeah. moment. Um, and I, I guess, were, were you nervous about that? Because with with Dr. you only get one shot at it. Yeah. How did you feel about it when you were actually there? Um. I think I, I was just kind of like a bit blown away. I I chatted to her on the phone a load of times when she was in prison and I'd kind of re- listened to her and I'd talk to her. But I think it was just like she was just there with these two little bags and she just had these teddy bears. Yeah. And it was just this kind of contradiction like that, like it's, with, it's at the heart of the film. Like she undoubtedly, like she's very open about saying that she was, she, want, she was involved in that plot to kill that guy. Mm. Um, and she said if somebody could have kind of uh, enabled her better, she may have been able to do it. Yeah. Um, it kind of came off the skids in Waterford. But also, like, sh- she's there and she was, like, I remember being, I thought, like, Matt, who shot that at the back, was just really great because he was kind of, like, just glancing down at the teddy bears. Yeah. And she was just talking about, it, like, she'd hold them when she was in shoe. So she was in solitary confinement for, like, two years. Wow. So, like, when she was in solitary confinement, she didn't have a teddy bear. So she was saying she'd have, like, a towel and she'd just wrap the towel and it would be, like, a teddy bear. And she, so... I think like for us, I think it's the exact same thing as what would happen to the audience. You're just kind of like, there was something quite, um, I'm not saying childlike, but like there was something, yeah, yeah, vulnerable. And so like, you cannot excuse what she's saying and what she had done. And I think that's what had been outlined in the film up to this point. But I think that moment is kind of flipping it on the other side and you're kind of, the audience just learned about her background and about how she was brought up and the sexual abuse that her father had afflicted on her. Mm. So all of a sudden it's flicked and you're just in the back of a car with her. And I think, I think for me, I think the idea is, especially when you see the coverage that she gets, that I think she's not that scary is one of the things, you know, like, yeah, yeah. like, like, and it's about this idea of terrorism and this anger and this darkness that exists on the internet. Yeah. But also about, um, like, maybe the vulnerabilities of the people involved or certain people anyway. Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, like that was just, a, so like for us, it was just kind of, um, I think it was like, uh, you're trying to translate what yeah. you're seeing so that the audience can see that. And I think that was fairly. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people probably draw a link between your previous uh, short film, The Moderators and, and, and Jihad Jane in that 
you definitely seem to be exploring ideas related to the internet. Is that, is that something that you're particularly interested in or is that just coincidence? Um, yeah, you know what it is? Like I, because it's kind of funny, there's always like people will say, oh, like there's teams of just kind of a couple of things back to back. Yeah. Um, and sometimes there is, like it's in the back of your head, but like I definitely wasn't sitting around thinking, oh, I'm, I'm like, I'm really fascinated about like the dark web. Yeah. I think with the moderators, um, my girlfriend had read an article that Adrian Chen had wrote for Wired magazine right. where he had gone to the Philippines. And this is like a, a number of years ago. Yeah. I think he was like one of the first reporters was really covering content moderators. And it just blew my mind. Yeah. Uh, and I think just the idea, the concept that there, there was somebody else on the other side of the computer screen removing stuff that I could see felt very uh, surreal and I felt like there was a pathos to it. Yeah. And I think that it kind of re- is reflected in about how the world is ordered and whatnot. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think like from that perspective, I like like what was useful for it was the story of now, like these times, it's, it's like, technology is going to be the defining thing. Like, you know, when they're, when they're doing in the reeling in the years or whatever it is, you know, and when they're going for gimmicks about how you do, how it, it's going to be internet and people with phones and whatever way they want to kind of talk about how civ- civ- civilization. But it's a really hard kind of crossroads to really do in a documentary. And we found that when we were even in um, doing the moderators and that kind of helped for Jihad Jane mm-hmm. because there's limits to just filming somebody on a computer. Like, there's just like, it's not that exciting. Yeah. But... Like, I think with moderators, I think what was exciting is about, like, all the stuff that was flashing on their screen and what they were dealing with and the surreality that their workflow increased or decreased with people getting out of bed. And, you know, like, you know, so, like, the busiest part of the day the moderators had was, I think, when Europe was finishing work and America was starting work. Do you know what I mean? So, like, whatever time. That could be six o'clock in the evening over there or something like that. But all of a sudden, they're really busy. And it's it's because everybody is just either clocking off and going on Facebook or Mm, going on whatever. Or they're going on to... So... That was kind of, um, yeah, like I think like just all of that kind of um, about the internet, like I was kind of interested in, but I think the moderators was really useful in the sense that you just kind of start learning about how difficult, because it is one of the defining stories, but to tell these stories through computer screens. So like I think with um, Colleen, I was just kind of curious about the story, mainly for the fact that they were presented as like Al-Qaeda in Waterford. Yeah. And I was like, then, but then all of a sudden the story dropped after about a month. Yeah. And I was like, what happened here? And, the, you know, the American justice system works that they were facing heavy charges. So they pleaded guilty. And then you didn't really he- hear anything more about it. And I was just kind of curious about what happened. Like they were in Waterford, they're walking around. And I just had this kind of curiosity about what had happened. So I really didn't start off with like, oh, I want to expose the internet. Mm-hmm. Like I want to, like I want to, or YouTube. And I want to kind of show about like how people are radicalizing and whatnot. But I think um, it kind of went there. Yeah. And like it went there very, very quickly because it, I think that's probably one of the main points that we felt about making the film. Was, wasn't that, it, this wasn't about a religion and radicalization. Mm-hmm. This is a kind of more about, like I, I chatted to Colleen like a good bit about it. Um, like, like at that t- period in time. So you're looking at maybe 2007, 2008, like something like YouTube. They did no moderation. Um, so people were like posting like beheading videos and posting, um, really graphic, uh, promotional videos for terrorism, yeah. and they just kind of were beginning to hook in a certain audience. And I, we chatted to people about like the viscerality of these videos, the effect that they had on them, because like they're extreme. Yeah. Uh, and um, so people who would have been chasing down Colleen, they're not in the film, talked about the effect it would have had on them, you know, talking about going red, 
you know, like pulsating almost watching it. And then I think Colleen and it had an effect on her. So then um, Mohammed, who was in the film as well, who's the the teenager, the child with Asperger's, yeah. he like talked about like spending eight or nine hours on YouTube. So I think that for us then it became like this was a clear part of the story. Yeah. It was a, st- a story of like, and it wouldn't have happened without the internet. Like the story couldn't have happened in 2002 and it couldn't have happened in 1992 and it couldn't have happened in 1982. It only happened like a couple of years ago because somebody in Colorado could talk to somebody in Philadelphia who could talk to somebody in Baltimore who could talk to somebody in Waterford. Mm-hmm. And they all talked about killing somebody in Sweden. Mm-hmm. And the, that it only could have happened in, in that kind of world. Mm-hmm. So then I think you just have the difficulties of as a documentary maker of just trying to how you visually represent it and how you can kind of uh, show that because it's, 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 it's very much just somebody on a computer screen but it's an internal process psychologically. Yeah, yeah. We managed that very well and then you try, yeah, you got that sense because it's international and you're, you're going from America to Ireland and then even to Sweden so it was kind of a surprise to see um, the his name escapes me now, the cartoonist. Uh, Lars Vilks. Lars Vilks, yeah. So how, how did you kind of approach his role in the film? Because he's kind of the, the kind of the third yeah, the, protagonist. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, it, like, it's a kind of such a funny story because you ended up, it was like dominoes. And right. I think y- you can't just kind of say, oh, there's Lars Vilks, they try to kill him. Because like, the audience are going to be like, who is this guy? Yeah. And because there was like so many co-conspirators, sometimes... Like either with Jamie or Colleen, like parts of the story fell down without the other person in it. So you felt like like dominoes. You needed to have them all there to get an idea of how the story ran against each other. Yeah. But with Lars Vilks, he's kind of like, um, it's very hard to describe. He, it, for somebody listening, in two thousand six, two thousand seven, he would have been a Swedish artist who would be known for being uh, kind of provocative. And he did uh, a piece where he drew Muhammad as a dog. So it was this kind of crude cartoon that he did, and it was also part involved in some sort of installation. I can even still, they have in Sweden, I think a culture of putting dogs on roundabouts right, or something like that. Okay. Okay. Uh, I'm, this is all coming back into my head now. I remember, <laughs> yeah. but the, I think he, he had something to do with a dog. Like, I think it's, it spawned out of some exhibition like that. And he eventually ended up doing this Muhammad as a dog, which, um, people found like really, really offensive. And um, there was protests in Sweden and those protests quickly spread all around the world. And I think then Islamic State, uh, in, in their kind of early in, incarnation around that time, it, uh, gave a fatwa. Uh, so I think it was 100,000 and 150k if his throat was slit. Uh, so he then was begin- put under police protection. Um and we would have went over and I think we filmed one a couple of times. I think the first couple of times it was like very, like you would give them uh, the details. They'd meet you in uh, in a very secure location. The police would then check all of our gear and then we would be taken somewhere where we wouldn't have any plan. And so like for a doc maker, it's kind of, you know, the way you'd want to be there. Can we do scenes? Can we, you know, follow the person around? We didn't know where we we're going. We didn't have a clue what was happening. We didn't, you know, and then all of a sudden, even when we're there for about an hour, he would come into the room and um, so we filmed a number of sessions with him. And I think what I found interesting about him was his role in it was uh, there was almost like a kind of he provoked uh, this huge reaction and there was kind of protests. And I suppose the reason why we included him firstly was that he was the target. So Colleen had planned with the others 
being uh, Black Flag and Mohammed about the murdering him in Sweden. They never got furthered in Ireland, but the idea was because he'd drawn this cartoon. But I think the other thing that we felt that was uh, important to ho- uh, include him as well was that after Colleen got arrested, so she got arrested in 2010, there was a huge like media coverage, like massive kind of, it was the biggest story on um, CNN, CBS, ABC. Like it wasn't buried in the middle of the programme. Like this mm. was like the, jing- the, you know, Sig Tune comes on and good evening yeah. uh, tonight in Philadelphia an American woman has been, you know. Yeah. So it was, it was massive news. So what happened was, like with Felix, what was interesting for us, because we were looking about how the media interacts with terrorism and how, like, let's say Colleen wanted attention. She loved attention and she wanted to be kind of be somebody, not nobody. So inadvertently, she gets all this coverage and then it goes back to Vilks. And Vilks, again, people have forgotten about him. People have forgotten like three or four years ago about this uh, fatwa. People have forgotten about, like he hadn't, hadn't died down completely, but he was kind of getting back to a normal life. And then all of a sudden, like he said as himself, people thought he had done something again. Mm-hmm. So he was all of a sudden getting this huge attention. Then all of a sudden people were now beginning to protest him again. So in 2010, there was, um, there was, um, he did a lecture in Uppsala and he now had more attention, more focus on him. And he, I think, played a video where Muhammad was involved in a homosexual relationship or something yeah, like that. And it's in, you have it in the film. Yeah. It's very crude. And there seems to be almost a sense that he's like just st- goading, yeah, 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 yeah. kicking like, the hornet's nest. Yeah, and yeah. then like, then all of a sudden this kind of st- starts again. So we didn't have it in the film exactly, but I think like maybe a couple of months later there was a bombing in the end of, in two thousand and ten. I think, like, as far as I know, a person died Someone in Stockholm, died, yeah, yeah. and but Lars Vilks and Iraq was sighted, and or maybe Afghanistan, and then uh, recently in about two thousand and fifteen there was a shooting at a, a reading that he was doing in Copenhagen where a gunman turned up at the event and um, Excuse me. Uh, turned up at the event and it was, people were shot at, 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 but the man was unable to gain entry. And I, I suppose like what we were trying to show with Vilks in, in that sense was that I think that um, Colleen didn't get, like never got close to killing him. But the fact that there was so much publicity about this case and there was so much, reignited it again yeah. and, and kind of created this back and forth between Vilks and... Um, so I think like the thing about it is even when with Colleen's case where it, it was completely on one level completely unsuccessful yeah. then on another level like it was hugely successful because like we chatted to again not in the film but he was a guy who ran the radical website that you know um, Colleen would have been watching videos of right. a guy called Jesse Morton and he talked about like oh you know when she was arrested like it was like this was like we thought this was great because it was just mad publicity, yeah. and so I think it's kind of this. Um, I think the idea with Lars is just I think, I think he kind of illustrates a he was also the, the target, but I think he also illustrates um, the how the media then can kind of create these kind of narratives and elevate yeah. people, and then yeah. all of a sudden you're having this kind of strange back and forth. Yeah, thing. no, it was really good because you kind of underlined. The, that idea of the news cycle, yeah, of how things die down and then be, and then they become a story again, and you kind of got that sense almost that this is cyclical and could keep going, yeah, you know, um, yeah, 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 kind of, kind of a, <laughs> a, a fascinating character. Yeah. Um, might just go back to how you got into making uh, films and documentaries mm-hmm. first. I know you kind of work. Uh, 
in radio documentary as well. Yeah. So. Yeah, like I I think I went, uh, I got a degree in economics and politics and then I went back and did a master's in journalism. When I was doing the master's in journalism, I did um, a radio doc as my, I think my thesis and I did a TV doc, like a script of it. Like they were the kind of two things I specialised in. I kind of really liked it. I've yeah. always kind of liked it. And um, when I left um, college, I got a job in RTE working and uh, making audio docs with, I think it was Peter Woods was in charge at the time. And um, I was, um, it was like just a really good experience in the yeah. sense of like when you're making audio docs, like it's very different to film. Like I, I did a TV series around that time for TG Carr. Right. So I think the visual side of things was implanted in me. I saw all the nuts and bolts. Yeah. I worked for, I think, TV3 on a soccer show as the editor of that. So I was comfortable with cameras. I was comfortable with that medium. I was doing reports. I would directed a TV series for Teacher Car and then I went in and I started like just this huge turnover of just like radio docs so you're doing like maybe eight or nine of your own each year right. and you know you research them you record them you edit them you do the post-production yourself. Now, obviously, you're working in a team, you're getting uh, criticism and feedback back yeah. and all that kind of stuff. But what it does is it just kind of really hothouses you. So you find yourself, like, within the first couple of years, find yourself in, like, loads of different settings from being, like, with football hooligans to, you know, dealing with a tragedy that happened in the mid-40s, you know, in Cavan yeah. to... You know, um, a really horrific case of bullying down in Cork where a child uh, committed suicide yeah. to like a, you know, a skeleton that would have been missing in um, uh, in a woods in Kent yeah. that was linked to a missing Irishman. Yeah. Um, so you just find yourself in all these different settings, uh, situations and you just kind of learn a lot very, very quickly. Yeah. Um, but while I was doing all of those, like I kind of was still very interested in film. So I did one under the Screen Ireland um, reality, you know, the short yeah. skill film, which is a great scheme. And that was about uh, collaboration horizontal. So that was about um, the shaving. I was I had Robert Kappa photo and it always stuck in my head. It was about a woman, the day of liberation in a small town in France and her head's shaved and, and she's walking, carrying a child through the crowds who are kind of jeering her. And it's like, re- it looks like a... A kind of a Renaissance painting. It's 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 epic in scale, but it it it's kind of just at that very moment she had obviously had some sort of relations with German officers. The towns turned, and the first people that they kind of pick on are uh, uh, local women who have been with uh, officers. So I was just kind of fascinated just about what was the story in, in the background of it and what the reaction in the town now was. So we went back and we just filmed in that town. Um, and most people were very, I think it's one of those kind of cases where I don't know if an Irish crew, if it had been something as sensitive about, if the story had been so sensitive about a town and an Irish crew arrived down, people might have been a little bit more kind of, but it was this bumbling group of Irish people kind of wandering around and walking into each, each other and not really having the language and yeah. all of this kind of stuff. I think they just kind of felt a little bit more easy just to be able to tell you. So we were brought into town, we met all the the neighbours who knew the woman and you kind of got a good um, scope of um, of the story. And I think that got into Telluride uh, when, it, when it came out and I think it won in Palm Springs or something like that. And then, but I, I kind of, you know, when you're doing your first one, like I kind of felt that uh, I'd made like a good bit of mistakes yeah. and y- those kind of things nag in your head. And I think I left it for about a year or two. And then I, um, I had the story, I came across the story of Peter Bergman and I kept on to it. Uh, and then I just went for that s- same scheme with Screen Ireland again. Um, but I think like I, I was, I think you just have to go through it first. 
uh, and make certain mistakes, make certain mistakes concerning logistics, make certain mistakes kind of just about how you approach it, about how, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So the second time I went back and like I think it was a far more kind of complete film and then that was, uh, that got into Sundance and like it travelled well. Um, and then that gave me the opportunity then to be able to um, start approaching people about making like feature Features. documentaries. Yeah. Um, and with Peter Bergman, it's a, it's a really original documentary. Uh, what was your kind of vision for it from the start? Um, it's kind of funny. Like, I think the idea was that, because I had a discussion with Morgan Bosch, who's the producer of it, that, oh, like, will we try and find out what the mystery was? And I kind of knew, like, I'm not going to be able to, like, on the time scale and, like, where we're at. Like, I just really wanted to tell the story of what that was and was that there was this kind of strange mystery and that a guy had come. And I, I was kind of very touched when I read it that he'd come into the town to disappear, yeah. and which was completely his prerogative and right to do so. Um but I think like the fact that so many people remembered him was one of the things that really jumped out at me. So I think like when he was on the beach alone, I think seven or eight people like remembered him. And I don't know what was going on. I don't like yeah. but that. But that's very, very unusual because I remember meeting, I think it was like I met Kate McCullough before we filmed it and we were having just lunch. And I said, what's the person look be- behind you look like? What is the person over there? And she'd walked in by them and she couldn't tell, you know, yeah. obviously you couldn't, couldn't tell. Yeah. But everybody could remember this guy. And he, like he just was kind of like just he walked up and down the beach and yeah. whatever. So I was kind of touched by the fact that, you know, he'd left behind um, a number of people who were kind of um, connected to him in a way. And I just kind of like, so we told it, their their story, his story, through each of the person, people that he met. Yeah. So we tried to then be like very disciplined with it. So like wherever they met him, we would have met them. So if we met people on the beach, if they met him earlier in the day, we shot it early in the day. If they met him late in the evening, we shot it late and the last people yeah. to see him, that was at dusk. So we tried to create that and then like, you know, obviously we interviewed the woman who was in the hotel reception behind a hotel reception. The guard was behind his desk. But I think for anybody who kind of came in con- contact with him, like the bus drivers, yeah. all of that, um, we just, like we would film them on the bus. Yeah. So we gave the sense of him moving through the town and the people that he would have encountered and that would remember him um, even though he wasn't um, doing much that, you know, that would really jump out in your memory. And then I think the other thing that we were trying to do, John Murphy was the editor on it. He was the editor in G.O. Jane. He did this kind of excellent job of like just kind of like we had a huge amount of CCTV footage of him uh, moving around the town and we tried to just kind of create the... You interweave that the, that footage of him meeting people with the footage of him wandering around, and I think we just want to also wanted to kind of give a sense of like the days, you know, like a beginning and ending, yeah. and then the profundity sometimes of him with the bag and the mystery, but just with the inane, you know, like just a cat walking by the camera and whatnot, just like the everyday life. Yeah. Um, and it got a huge reaction. Were you? surprised uh, or what kind of reaction did you, or what kind of feedback did you get from um, I, I, like, I think the thing about it is you know with anything you do it's always the case like you really worry about it so like even like when I was going to like it got selected Sundance like I was like still going over there going oh people are going to be slamming it it's going to be you know like people are yeah. what are you doing with this so you're always really really worried about it and then I think it just it began to have a life of its own so it started like I started getting phone calls um, 
like like one week I got phone calls from a load of French TV companies like like stations so like I think on one Friday night I was on two like evening news shows in, in Paris or like yeah so like it, all of a sudden it spiked there right. I went I remember for a while I think it was in Colombia or something like that I went viral so like some paper had put it up and then all of a sudden they were like really interested in it there's loads of like uh, like Brazilian kind of um, poltergeist ripoffs so right. like you see all, like guys have taken the footage and then they put it up on YouTube but there's kind of a narration over it about you know poltergeist uh, Peter Bergman or something like that so there's loads of stuff like that <laughs> floating around so right. yeah and then like then like it did like I would see it because we'd know it would be going to a certain festival so just you just would get it just somebody tweet you or somebody would come back to you concerning it and it just started kind of travelling around Yeah. so you'd have like different it have different lives. Like I think films always have that. Everybody has that. So you have a screenings, and then you have when it goes on TV, and then when you have yeah. it when it's put up online. And yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Well, there's not that many fil- short films that really connect, even when they are put online. So did you have kind of a strategy, or was it just is it just one of those things? I think um, I think we we're I think Aeon had bought it, yeah. and um, Aeon had bought it, and. Like they just have a like they were a good kind of launch pad for it. Yeah. So I think like just when it was up and that, all of a sudden the day it went up, you could see straight away. Like you just would put in Peter Bergman, and then just people were exchanging and floating around. So even for things like like with Adrian Chen, when I approached him, he had seen that film right. from and so like he kind of knew some of my work. So that really helped yeah. me down the line with um, when approaching other people. So they had a good profile yeah. of it. And it's kind of funny. Like I was at Sheffield, so the film that won overall. Um, was um, I think it was a film called Midnight Family, and it was like one of the best docs I've seen in years. Right. It's unbelievable, but it's about like in um, Mexico, the like ambulances are private sector, but if you get there first, so if you get to the f- scene first and you throw somebody in who's sick and they got private health insurance, then you bring them to the hospital. You get like a five k or whatever. Okay. So people like are just like all these kind of like it was following a fam- family in Mexico yeah. City, and they're just waiting on the side of the road. And all of a sudden, someone comes in and they're driving through and all that. So in a sh- car, in just and, no, and in a drone kind of homemade okay. ambulance, yeah. Right. But it's 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 you root for the characters, but it it the it's very ambiguous mor- 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 morally. Yeah, morally. Yeah, yeah. But it's just an incredible film. Like it's it's it shot amazingly. But it was funny, the guy who would do the Aeon videos was the producer of um that film. Okay. So I was just chatting to him when I was over at Sheffield about it. But um like he, like it was just uh, with Aeon. I just think it just it gave it yeah. like I think just a little small little platform. I think with moderators it was kicked off on by Wired. Right. Um, like I think like they and a couple of other like they had like eight million people on their Twitter thing. So you just yeah. tweeted out to them, yeah. and I think they had a couple of other. So it was aggregated within twenty four hours by yeah. like some uh, accounts with a lot of numbers. So okay. it just kind of gets it out there, which really does help because it is. I think with documentaries and you kind of know yourself, like be it short or features or whatever, there's like a massive amount of films out there and it's hard to get coverage it's hard to get noticed so it, I think just whatever way and whatever platform you can that gets yeah. it out there yeah, really makes a difference and do you, would you like going to festivals and do you find you get much out of going to festivals um, I like I, I think as you get older you kind of like change or whatever so I think like when I was younger I think it would have been more like falling around to some reception and all of that well now like I just kind of like really enjoy just like going there and being a real like because I think sometimes it's far, hard to watch like a lot of films you come in you're yeah. tired yeah. if you've been editing something for like 
you know, in nine hours, I just don't want to see like somebody make a masterpiece and then just me to be sitting there in the fog of my own <laughs> uh, mediocrity. <laughs> so sometimes you might watch it. But like, I think when you go over festivals, I think it's just kind of a, you're, it's like nine o'clock in the morning and you just go in and you watch a film and it's great. Yeah. So usually what I do now is I just try and watch four or five a day, four anyway, a day and then just at some festival and just, just do a couple in a, in a row and just kind of like binge on it because it's yeah. it's really healthy for giving you ideas so like you know when we're talking at the very start about like oh you got a slate and you got six or seven ideas yeah. you can you know like some topic might be similar to a story that you're doing and give you ideas you yeah. might see a couple of great movies and give you ideas about like uh how to approach it and then other times like just Q&A's afterwards and like people just have interesting kind of sides but I think it's just like it's really just a reset button like it just takes you away because otherwise you're just kind of constantly operating this kind of um, little uh, Ferris wheel where you're kind of running around running around running around and I think sometimes it's good just to take a pause and just figure out yeah and kind of just top up your imagination and uh, and your passion I guess yeah yeah Yeah. Uh, cool um what kind of stories are you interested in telling now, like going forward, or or is it just that you, you obviously seem to have a good nose for a story, and is it just something you know when you see it, kind of thing? Yeah, um, yeah, I think it's I think it's just like you know, like I think the thing about it is I like sometimes I get I would like uh, people will mock me, you know, who know me about the kind of stories that I would somewhat get involved in and whatnot, right? Um, but I'd always kind of trust my gut, like just as in there's a certain story that I would kind of feel connected to and there's a reason why I'm there. And I, I kind of, because you've doing it for quite a long t- period of time, I you, you do, I think it's like it's good to, like I wouldn't want to make the same doc over and over again. Yeah. So I think like Honor Slate, there's like, like a lot of flexibility and a lot of difference and whatnot. Yeah. But I think there's something innate there. Like I think with like whatever story you're going to end up with, like documentaries is a long, 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 long road. And yeah. you can end up like, like let's say starting off on a doc um, and it could be three, three, four years later. So y- you really do have to have a connection with the story. Yeah. And there has to be something, like it is kind of almost personal in a way that like is, is uh, attracting you to it because you just can't fake that. You can't fake it like the coming off and trying to pitch it, yeah. then trying to go off and connect with these people themselves, then trying to go and p- put it together and it could be like 18 weeks in an edit and whatnot. So if it's like, if something isn't really exciting you about the story, it's a long, long uh, way to be going, yeah. Um, uh, with that kind, of, you know, it's a, it's a very yeah um, long relationship. So I just I, I always kind of would kind of um, trust myself, but I think you have to like there's there's things like are good stories, yeah. but they won't make a good documentary. Right. While there are stuff that you will know straight away, oh, this has got huge potential, and there could be something happening in it now, and yeah. So there's all of these kind of different factors that yeah. you would yeah, and uh, like you obviously have. Do you think you've gotten better at pitching over the years and picked up kind of tips through, through, as you say, having such big slates? Yeah, um, I don't know. Like I, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of the funny one. Yeah, like I, like I obviously imagined that I would have, uh, yeah. but I think you're coming in on a different. Like I would say, I would have like six years ago came in really excitable and right. you know full of energy, and this is the most important meeting in the world, and you have to take this film. Yeah, yeah. While now you might be a little bit more jaded, but I think you know that you've only got like a couple of minutes sometimes mm. with people, and you have to kind of hit the right notes but sometimes it's kind of funny like you just know like like I've gone into meetings and they aren't interested like yeah. they like it's kind of like they you know they 
they're sitting down, but like they're already, oh, who are you again? And other times, like the person has looked at a trailer, they're really energized by it and as ex- excited as you are. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's kind of like a. I, think, I do think though it's a good test in a weird way because like you have to be up for it and it, yeah. it, like, it like always with pitching you know, when you're going off and you're doing it it makes you rethink about the film and what the strengths yeah. and the qualities of it are Yeah. Uh, and you have to be able to kind of like if you're just saying that oh I can make a film at this then you should be that's communication you should be able to communicate what you find exciting and interesting about that in space yeah. of two or three minutes as well and would you have uh, done sizzle reels much or is that something that you've had to do or do you think it's something that maybe is becoming more prevalent you mean like just kind of trailers before you do it? Before, yeah, yeah, yeah. trying to get the funding together. That yeah, kind of I think you usually, like, it's kind of a funny one, like, cause, like, the whole doc thing is just chicken and egg. Yeah. And, like, they, people, like, you need to, like, people will ask to see something, but then they won't give you anything. So you're trying to, so we made a, for, like, Jihad Jane, I think we made a, 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 a trailer for that. And I'd never like to see it, because it was just so, like, you know, like, let's say if it was a pizza, like this was, a, you know, like a, if the whole dock now is a slice, is a giant pizza. Yeah. Like the trailer like covered almost like a, you know, a couple of fr- freckles of pepperoni right. down in the corner. You know, it was just, yeah. it was yeah, such yeah. a kind of small fraction of it, but you were making such a big deal out of it, uh, trying to encourage people. But it was so lopsided because we had only a certain amount of access okay. at that time and whatnot. Yeah. But I do think, yeah, I think... I think it's kind of good in a, if you can go and shoot and put together something like it is useful because you can then see it on screen mm. uh, and people get to see the character. Sometimes like um, a character is amazing yeah. and once people see them up on screen um, that will um, encourage somebody to kind of back it or fund it. Yeah. But even like I was talking about just to you about that uh, film The Midnight Family the Mexican yeah. film like I think like they had like a lot of you know trouble at the start about like getting it off the ground and you know you're sending off like cuts and stuff like that and I think it initially was rejected from Sundance a year before that and they went okay. back a year later with a, a new version of it and all that as far as I can remember whatever but the, the the point being though that I think just with all like docs I think there is that kind of um, it's very difficult yeah. uh, and I think yeah like anything that you can do to make it easier for yourself to get it like it's it's asking a lot like especially if you're inexperienced. And you don't have like a lot of background to turn around and say, "Oh, give me funding on the basis of what I've wrote on a word document." Yeah, you know, like and you might might get it and yeah. like fair play. Yeah, but I think like if you can show them something, and the, and the further you can push somebody down that road, the better. Yeah, yeah. Um, is there any advice that you wish you had been given, maybe when you're starting out making films? Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's a big one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know like I think like the whole film thing is I think it's just I think everybody has to figure it out themselves like in a sense of like like I don't know it's about how it's like on one side like I'm completely fascinated by the art of it and you know like the creation of a doc and how you can make it into 90 minutes and a dramaturgy and how things are put together and on the other hand there's a business side of it and how people can make a living out of it and all of that and I think the two of them like go side by side. So I think the thing about it is, is that I probably didn't think as much about the business side about it and, you know, uh, living and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. I was right. just completely absorbed by uh, the idea of putting out a 90-minute doc. Well, I think now there's an, an art into being able to survive, swim, go with the currents, all of that, keep yeah. yourself above water, yeah. which kind of possibly isn't kind of fully... Um, openly recognized you know like within the industry so i think you know you meet people and like they're a professor and they make documentaries or they do you know and then 
I think it just makes more sense of the industry. Yeah. Um, so I think when you're doing it, I think it's just to find uh, find your footholds in what is a kind of a, a pretty, it's a pretty um, turbulent, you know, uh, industry at times. So just make sure that you work out where you're going to position yourself and how you're going to kind of be able to operate within, you know, the sector. Because, like, you can have good years, you can have bad years, you can have, you know, it's very much snakes and ladders. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's just about, if the advice is just, like, about making sure that you have all of the kind of firm footing yeah. and make sure that you're kind of always aware where you're placing your feet as you're moving forward. Great. It's kind of, yeah, kind of that resilience. That yeah. The, the ups and downs. Yeah, and I, I think just, and... Uh, yeah, and I, I think it's just as well. Like, I think it's just about like how you manage your way through. Like, I think it's very hard. Like, I think it's hard, very hard. Like, just to turn around and say, "Oh, you're going to be full time just making uh, f- film docs," yeah. and then you like, it's, is you going to supplement it by doing like TV docs? Are you going to do it by audio docs? Are you going to do a bit of lecturing? Are you a writer? Like, are you going to do screenplays? You know, are you like how how are you going to kind of you know? So I think it's just to tr- yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I think it's kind of. Um, how you kind of um, maneuver, and everybody's really different. Everybody's got different skill sets. So, so people, you know, like are coming in from different backgrounds and whatnot, and different skills. So, like some people are editors who could be a doc maker. Some people are like, you know, hands-on DOPs who can shoot their own stuff as well. So, I think we're all coming at it from different skill sets. But I think it's just about how you can kind of uh, uh, manage to navigate because, like, it is like, like a like. There's times, especially when I was shooting it, like like docs are, it's kind of mad when you see it on the big screen and when you see stuff like that happen. And it's like very invigorating and it's really exciting, but I think it's just to make sure that you can kind of operate within that. Brilliant. Karen, thanks so much for taking the time. We really appreciate it. Thanks very much for having me.